This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, are you ready to climb the mountain and reach new heights for a transformative future? Well, we have the right guest for you this week on the Race to Value. Debbie Welly Powell is a healthcare thought leader, educator, national speaker, and content expert in delivery systems, clinical models of care, population health, and digital care. She's also an avid mountain climber, so we're going to talk about that as well. As the Former Chief Population Health Officer at Essentia Health, an integrated delivery system with 14 hospitals and 1,500 providers in their health system across the states of Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Debbie designed, built, and operationalized Essentia's $2.5 billion transition from a primarily fee-for-service model of care to one that's focused on value. Her results led to 45% of the system's revenue being tied to financial and clinical performance, which produced record earnings on shared savings. You know, listeners, as Eric said, this is such an exciting guest to have. Her exceptional and national experience and background in multi-state, large integrated delivery systems, coupled with industry involvement and insights into emerging opportunities, trends, and challenges, have been valuable, so valuable to health systems and purchasers that are seeking to grow, diversify, and promote expertise in the development and implementation of data-driven strategies and solutions for population health and value-based care. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. As Eric mentioned, the insights from a mountain climber applied to value-based care are just really poignant. She talks about a federal framework, governance structures, contracting with payers, SDOH. There's deep knowledge and insights that we can gain from Debbie. Well, with a collaborative ecosystem and the support of organizations like ours, the Institute for Advancing Health Value, and this podcast, Race to Value, we can scale the mountain and reach the summit. And with this podcast, we want to continue to provide you content each and every week that's going to help you continue to scale your efforts and engage your physicians and really make a difference in the populations that you serve. Please go to our website, racetovalue.org, sign up for our weekly newsletter so you don't miss a show. And if you're so inclined, feel free to go to Apple Podcasts. We'd love a, a review and a rating if you have the time, and we appreciate your support. So without further delay, now let's hear from Debbie Welly-Powell as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. 
Debbie, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to have you on the show this week. Thank you. I'm, it's good to be with you. Well, Debbie, I thought we'd start our conversation today by talking about this race to value that we're in in our country. You know, here on this podcast, we do, in fact, believe that we're in a race to make value work. And the stats in our health system are pretty grim. I mean, we spend $4 trillion, nearly 20% of our GDP. We're two times per capita as the number two country in the world. We have outcomes that aren't really that good, you know, compared to what we spend. And we lead the world in chronic disease. We're devastated by health disparities. And I always say that we have this economic and this moral imperative for value. And you and I and, and you know, Daniel, we, we all share this passion to accelerate transformation. And often at times, it seems like we're shouting in the wind. You know, we have this medical industrial complex that simply does not want value-based care to reach a critical mass because of the opportunities to reap massive profits within an unbridled fee-for-service system. And just recently, uh, Don Berwick wrote this article about excess profiteering in healthcare for JAMA, and it was entitled Salve Lucrum, the Existential Greed in U.S. Healthcare. And he did a really good job of hitting home on that point. And I just wanted to read an excerpt from this article as we start our conversation today. And it goes as follows. Profit may have its place in motivating innovation and higher quality in healthcare as in any industry, but klepto-capitalist behaviors that raise prices, salaries, market power, government payment to extreme levels hurt patients and families, hurts vulnerable institutions, governmental programs, small and large businesses, and workforce morale. And those behaviors, mostly legal but nonetheless wrong, have now accumulated to a level that poses an existential threat to a sustainable, equitable, and compassionate healthcare system. The glorification of profit, salve lucrum, is harming both care and health. Healthcare should not be an engine for excessive private gain. So, Debbie, I wanted to get your reflection and take on the current state of the healthcare industry. I mean, given the entrenched business interest and the glacial pace by which the value movement has been progressing, will we ever reach an inflection point where value-based care will become more ubiquitous across the country for all populations, whether receiving care under public or private insurance? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, that is what I've been about in terms of healthcare has been my only career, and I have a long runway in it. And I have wanted to go to those organizations that provide value. I grew up in practice management and in the early 90s was running the first primary care group practice without walls focus. And we wanted to do things differently. We wanted to, at the primary care level, coordinate care. We wanted to put our performance at risk. We didn't want to be a 1-800-mother-may-I. Um, we wanted to deliver care differently and to be rewarded for the work that we did, which eventually moved into global cap. And maybe we were a bit premature back in the 90s. We obviously were. There was a lot of managed care backlash. But I guess I would say, Eric, my career has been to move. And this, I'm a Minnesota gal, um, grew up there, moved to where the puck is, and to test these models of care within systems that really have a commitment to this moral belief in that we are here to serve. We must make healthcare affordable. We deserve it. Our patients, our colleagues deserve better outcomes, more engagement, 
And I guess when you look at the evidence around chronic conditions today, it is really sad because in the work that we've done around population health more recently, it's hard to engage people around their care, around fitness, around exercise, but I've never given up. I've never given up on the belief that we can do better. And I read Don Berwick's article and I actually reposted it from your post on LinkedIn and I thought, we can do better, guys. We can do better. And maybe, I think the article outlined a lot of good information. It probably needed more depth and meat on the bone when it, when it came to what do, we, what do we need to do about this? And if it's to raise the discussion, then let's have it. Um, but people have been talking about profitability for a long time in this organization. And I think if we don't figure it out, then we will become a single payer system. And I'm not so sure that's the right answer either. Debbie, thank you. I really agree with what you're saying. And I can't tell you how excited we are to have you as a guest this week on the show. You have such an amazing breadth of healthcare executive experience, and it runs the gamut of healthcare delivery. You've been a CEO of a medical group practice. You've led payer strategy and government affairs for a large health system. And you've most recently come from leading the population health for Essentia Health, where you oversaw their telehealth, virtual care, payer contracting, chronic care programs, data analytics, and community health and wellness, including social determinants of health, for a pool of 186,000 commercial Medicare and Medicaid at-risk lives. And in the last year, you also served as the chair of NACOS, and you also recently chaired the Healthcare Innovation Congress, Think360 Value-Based Care Summit that convened some of the leading healthcare change agents in the country. And as I think about value-based care leadership, you're a shining example, but really it's gonna take an entire ecosystem of value-minded leaders like yourself to make this transformation happen. And that's really what we're about. What we're trying to do with our institute and this podcast is to evangelize on the tenets of value transformation, to share best practices and leading intelligence and elevate the consciousness of our industry so the leaders can step up and guide transformation in each of their respective organizations. And during your early comments in answering Eric's question, I was reminded of a quote by Upton Sinclair. And he said, it is difficult to get a person to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. And this is so true when it comes to value-based care. Uh, um, Debbie, how should we go about in your mind, engaging and activating industry leaders so that we can fully realize the potential for value-based care transformation? Will we need another black swan event like COVID-19 or something worse, like catastrophic financial meltdown of the industry that breaks the system altogether for leaders to act boldly and make the, the necessary financial and cultural investments? I do think that you know, with the refresh strategy of CMS and CMMI, you know, we have Mima, we have Chiquita Brooks Lesher and Liz Fowler. Um, I like what they're trying to do around this um, strategy refresh and the focus on their goal, the stake in the ground around 100% of the 58.6 million beneficiaries being in accountable care arrangement. Their focus on health equity, they, they believe, and I believe they're right. You can't talk about quality unless you're talking about health equity. And we learned a lot from the pandemic. You know, and I'm not even sure that uh, we're ready for the next public health emergency. I don't know if we've learned enough from COVID. I hope so. Uh, but will we approach another pandemic differently? Um, but I do like what Medicare is doing around setting a framework. So you've got 
their stake in the ground. And I think that's always good. It's an ambitious goal from innovating with specialty care, innovating on new models. I'm really talking about disparities in equity, more risk. Uh, yeah, in my role as, as now past chair of NACOs, I was looking at some data the other day. When we started this journey around Medicare shared savings back in 2012 and where we are today and now with the launch of the ACO REACH model, um, we've got about 600 um, ACOs in these Medicare contracts, and they have helped uh, providers innovate and given them data and tools to really think about how we deliver more affordable care with better patient outcomes and engaging our members so I do like that stake in the ground. And in my long runway career, you know, Medicare has been the laboratory of change. Uh, think back when they did RBRVS and the commercial carriers were doing McGraw-Hill. They migrated to what Medicare was doing. Medicare is not shy about the fact that they, could, they control about 150 million lives in traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage and Medicaid and CHIP and the individual market. And that $1 and every $5 uh, healthcare dollar is spent by the government. And so I think they're looking at things like the alignment of quality metrics across these programs, the multi-payer approach to improvement, to look at these pillars about how we expand access in rural areas that we don't have today. So I am hopeful and maybe naively because nothing has really stuck, um, but we are seeing some migrate, some improvement though with the ACO movement. And we are seeing that of those in Medicare shared savings, two thirds of the health systems in those Medicare shared savings contracts are taking on risk now. Providers that at one point didn't take on risk, got their claims data, built out their analytics, really thought about coordinated care, and really have been innovating and improving. Now, are we moving fast enough? No. Will this framework, is it too aggressive? Perhaps. Um, I don't know if the commercial market, though, is going to, you know, when I look at the numbers, I ask myself, you know, where's the commercial market and what what are they doing around alignment of quality metrics? Because people are exhausted, right? They're exhausted that each payer does it differently. Well, when you consolidate or think about the government and 150 million lives, they can do a lot. And I think they're trying to do better than they have before. So I'm hopeful about that. And I'm going to stay connected and involved um, in this work because hey, you know, we're all entering the forest. We are becoming Medicare ourselves and we deserve to have the best care and so do our family members. So Debbie, I wanted to go deeper on this value-based industry transformation that's underway. You know, hospitals in particular are struggling with this transition of value and they've also been suffering immensely in attempting to remain viable in the current paradigm of fee-for-service. In the last year, hospitals have seen their operating costs increase upwards of 10%, and their bottom lines are now hemorrhaging to the tune of billions of dollars. And in the last few years, we've also seen how the market-driven consolidation with all these large hospital conglomerates expanding through the purchase of smaller hospitals and independent clinics. It's been driving up overall healthcare spending, and all this is happening while there's uh, increasing scrutiny and opposition to tax exemptions for nonprofit hospitals uh, that are providing a community benefit that oftentimes is deemed to be negligible to their for-profit peers. And 
and to add insult to injury, I mean, we've been hearing about issues of pay and equity where nonprofit hospital CEOs are making an average of eight times the rate of hospital workers without advanced degrees. And while the highest paid are receiving, you know, 60 times the hourly pay of general workers. And, and then everywhere you look, we see how clinicians and nurses are just beaten down. I mean, they're experiencing a high level of burnout and moral injury that's unprecedented. And what I love about the promise of value-based care is that it can solve all the challenges we see in the industry, really. I mean, it addresses the entire quintuple aim of cost, quality, patient experience, burnout, and equity. But like any massive industry change, it won't happen without winners and losers. But I'm left to wonder, you know, if the hospitals and health systems, do they necessarily need to be losers? In fact, you know, value transformation could actually save them if they adopt risk contracts within a high capability infrastructure and they lean in to embrace a more patient centric and innovative culture. And they evolve to asset light delivery models that widen the front door of the delivery system. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Debbie, you know, what is your take on reform that needs to take place to better align hospitals with value-based care? I mean, how should they be rethinking their approach to investment and delivery assets and organizational culture to, to better care for the people that they serve? Yeah, that is a great question. It makes me think about health systems and what their mission is. And I came from Essentia, which was we are called to make a healthy difference in people's lives. And I guess the question is, do you believe your mission and do you live out your mission? And I think like you, value-based care and the ACO movement has significant opportunities to create more affordability and better outcomes for our patients. I don't think left to themselves, they'll just do it unless there's a framework. I don't even know if, you know, even on the commercial market, can individual payers make the change? I think this is where we have to have a federal framework that creates a groundswell of support to move in that direction and to move in that direction faster. And I do like the, and maybe I've bought the Kool-Aid, but maybe it's the only Kool-Aid out there right now in their strategic refresh. I'm going to be hopeful that they control 150 million lives and what we have 330 million people in America. So they've got, a, they have a huge opportunity to leverage and move fast. It's ambitious and it's aggressive, but it's the only thing I really do see creating that framework where then health systems or uh, physician organizations or convener organizations can step up and have a framework where they can receive claims, they can receive waivers, they can improve on disparities and equities and the underserved areas, because it's not just in the urban areas, it really has to be a cachet for all areas. Uh, I don't think, though, left to our own devices, we're going to organize. That's what I'm hopeful for. And I'll just give you an example from where I came from. When we decided to take on risk, that was a game changer for us. Uh, and it took the leadership at the highest levels in our organization to say, in 2015, we're going to do downside risk. Because if not now, when? There will never be a good time for risk. But the it took the leadership 
to then carry the torch that this work was important, that the work of creating affordability for our patients and with our patients was important. Why is it important? I mean, if they have less out-of-pocket expenses, maybe they can buy more groceries. Maybe they can pay their rent. Maybe they can take their family to the movies. If we improve health outcomes, the quality, we can reduce the cost of care. And who doesn't want to have a healthier lifestyle, right? So I think we have to get started and we have to create enough incentives that people get started because once they get started, so we went from that contract to when I left Essentia, 42% of our revenue was flowing through our value-based contracts. Now, that doesn't mean that 42% of our revenue was at risk and we were in jeopardy of, of a payback if we didn't perform. It meant that it touched the principles of affordability, improved quality, and better engagement for better outcomes. And each year, as we took on more risk, we continue to improve on all of those pieces. And it made our system, our, uh, not made, but the people in our organization felt good that we were trying to work hard to live out our mission of making a healthy difference in people's lives. So I do think leadership is important. I think getting started is important. I think risk in exchange for data to innovate, to realize how you perform relative to maybe your peers and competitors in the marketplace is a game changer to think that care can be delivered differently. And that kind of gets to a lot of nonprofits, right? Are they not paying taxes? Are they really delivering on their mission? And are they doing it in a way that um, it's not just about care in the clinics or care in the hospital, but it's really wellness and prevention really in their communities and where they live? Wow, Debbie, you've touched on so many key points, and I really appreciate those comments about industry transformation. And I want to go a little bit more in depth on one of the tailwinds that's really enabling transformation. You recently wrote an article for Health Tech Magazine about Essentia's journey and commitment to virtual care and the importance of transforming value-based care in a rural setting. And at Essentia, one of your responsibilities was to design and create innovative care models, including virtual care, remote patient monitoring, hospital at home strategies, and more with market leaders and community-based partners to identify and take action on programs with the most meaningful health outcome measures. And this is an aspect of care delivery innovation that's top of mind for many value-based care leaders as the disruptive nature of the COVID pandemic really forced us to rethink the care delivery model and optimize digital and virtual delivery systems. And additionally, consumers are now increasingly willing to share their personal data through wearable technology and Bluetooth-enabled devices. So this new virtual model of care is empowering consumers to take control of their well-being in ways that were impossible a few years ago. So your leadership over this new model of care at Essentia showed outstanding results, generating higher patient satisfaction scores eliminating SDOH barriers in underserved communities, preventing emergency department visits, and saving approximately $2.5 across Medicare, Medicaid, and other commercial populations. And those earnings, in turn, were reinvested into chronic care programs, enhanced applications, and analytical tools to further scale success in population health. I'd love 
to hear you discuss your vision for virtual care and the role that digital innovations can play in the value-based care ecosystem. And what are some of the challenges and barriers that need to be overcome with telehealth and other modalities to reach a critical mass and adoption while also bridging the digital divide in underserved communities? Yeah, that is a great question. And yes, we did all that work. And, you know, we had to pivot. We had been doing some virtual care at the time of COVID, some around cardiology, but we we had the platform. We had telehealth in place. We had a, a call center as well, a 24-7 call center. So it didn't take much for us to pivot when we did what others did across the country, and that was close our clinics and kept our patients safe and at home. And so we quickly were able to launch those virtual visits. And I, I think at the end of the day, we actually led the state of Minnesota with over either 700 or 900,000 virtual visits, e-consult visits on demand. Um, and it really gave us a feel for what was possible and for our stakeholders to know that care could be delivered well and be delivered differently. And think about the fact that we are in a rural setting. So even irrespective of the pandemic, people don't want to drive, you know, 30 miles to a clinic or to a hospital or to a procedure center. Uh, they would prefer if they can to receive their care at home. And so we had this platform of these value-based contracts. And the platform helped to align our incentives that as we delivered care virtually and we delivered it more affordably and we kept our patients and we knew who they were. In fact, ACOs have done a really nice job during the COVID because they knew the population and the names that were impaneled to them. They could do the outreach to the members and keep them safe and at home. I think there's some real good research on that. So in being able to do that, we were then able to implement remote patient monitoring around three medical conditions, create somewhat of a command center to deliver that care. And that's where we saw admissions and our ED visits dropping and people were receiving the care they needed. And in fact, not only that, but we were able to send them reference guides through my chart. Uh, the Epic app to keep them connected to other services that they might need, whether it's food, mental health services, we could create gates of access for them that normally they would not have access to. And so we did see those savings. And what felt good about the return on those savings was we were still delivering care that they needed and we were delivering it safely, and we were keeping our colleagues safe and not coming into an office structure as well. What's been interesting since then, we actually went after the Hospital at Home, which was a program that was launched in November of 2020, and we were approved by CMS in April of 2021. It was slow to adopt in our organization just because of the requirements of the care team and for people to become comfortable with delivering we had 30 different DRGs from pneumonia to cellulitis to some other conditions that were, we were delivering at home, but it, it allowed us to test different models of care. And so I am not there anymore. I recently am semi-retired uh, from Essentia, best job I ever had. And um, I think their numbers have grown, but there were so many things about that, that the 
consumers love. So they didn't have to drive. They got the care. It was much easier. Now, fast forward, we're back to patient um, face-to-face visits. And around the time that I left, our virtual visits on demand dropped to like 5% or 10%. And we were dumbfounded by why the significant drop. Well, you're going back to the way things used to be. And we started to really understand that what we needed to do was better human motion studies and working with our clinicians or agreeing on how we were going to govern the clinical practice around virtual care. So what permanently could we provide on a virtual basis going forward that it wasn't just a one-off? to get more structured and more organized around that. And what our clinicians, what we heard from them and the feedback was, hey, Debbie, you know, like video visit on demand at three, and then I have a face-to-face at 3.30, you know, I'm having to go over here, and then I'm having to do this over there. So we needed to really kind of transform our thinking around virtual care. But I think it has a great place, a future place. I think we spent $30 billion in 2021 on telehealth and virtual care in this country. I think we, though, need to work on the ROI piece and make sure that that makes sense. On the other hand, I just read an article that McKinsey was showing how the age group of 30 to 45-year-olds are leaving their established primary care physician, and they're going to those primary care physicians that they know that they can get their virtual care from, because that's the way they want to receive their care. So I think health systems have to get really smart and understand what this means around virtual care and think about it really as a way to meet our patients' needs. It's really a brand strategy. It's really a care improvement strategy. It's an access strategy. There's so many things about it that I know. I mean, I'm in Breckenridge, Colorado right now, and I do um, my care uh, virtually, and I like that. I mean, who doesn't like that? So, But I think we have to work through some of the issues that we are experiencing right now with virtual care. But from a value-based care perspective, great ability to think through ER visits and admissions and readmissions in those areas that we've struggled with a bit where we have high use rates. Debbie, that's just an outstanding case study right there on what can happen when you lean into innovation and with really a a value-minded focus to improve care delivery. And, you know, to your point, you know, it, it improved the brand recognition care improvement and care delivery, improved access, and it also addressed a lot of the social determinants of health that are um, impacting underserved and vulnerable populations. And, you know, one other thing in your career that I noticed that you've also been very successful in is forming partnerships with payers. I mean, you've demonstrated a high level of proficiency and success and lead payer negotiations, forging these strong relationships that ultimately translate to improved outcomes for the populations you serve. And unlike in a fee-for-service model, payer contract negotiations and value, they don't always have to be a zero-sum game. I mean, incentive misalignments and competing stakeholder priorities just don't work in a model where all stakeholders are at the table trying to lower the total cost of care and improve patient health outcomes. And the opportunities in fee-for-service seems like they're no longer there anyway. For example, you know, hospitals and health systems are inc- increasingly unable to rely on commercial insurance to subsidize losses on the public pay side. And all that said, I'm just really interested in how you've been able to cultivate 
meaningful payer provider partnerships throughout your career to improve population health strategies. I mean, this is quite the accomplishment since provider organizations traditionally have been leery of payers and several providers say that payers are on the dark side. You know, and in value-based care, you're you're really in an environment where you can't win unless you build these successful partnerships with payers where all entities are all equal partners at the table and make joint decisions and perform clinical integration activities and work together on programs to improve patient outcomes and quality performance. So Debbie, as a value-based care leader, how have you been able to, you know, quote unquote, check your weapons at the door as it relates to those historical biases and assumptions and figure out how to work with payers in a more collaborative manner where you can re really reach those true win-win partnerships? And, and also, how have you been able to leverage these payer provider partnerships to improve population health outcomes and reduce health disparities? Well, that is a great question. I love that. Leave your weapons at the door. I'm not sure I leave them at the door. I probably keep them in my pockets. I think there is a prospective view of who you want to partner with. I don't think you partner with everyone. I don't think they're partner ready. It's important that as you think about payer relations and what you're trying to accomplish, you got to come together on that first. Um, the, the reputation of a health system, the reputation of a payer. And uh, just because somebody is big doesn't mean that they're your right partner. It really is about agreeing on what you're trying to accomplish. So if we use the importance of the triple aim or affordable care, better outcomes, and it's not just lip service to it, but you come to the table with integrity that this is who you are and this is your mission and your vision and values as, as maybe as corny as that might sound. I think that is significant and it is huge and it sets the table to determine whether or not the parties actually agree on their mission, vision, and value. And if they do, it gets you to the table. And then I think there is just this readiness from a health system side. We had a 50-page document that we developed that we said, if we're going to do risk, downside risk with you, these are the things we need to have. We just want to put it out there that this is what we need. We need claims. We need, need them timely. Yes, we don't care what you pay our competitors, but we want the bill charges as a surrogate for what the cost of care is elsewhere, because in these total cost of care contracts where we are at risk for, we need the information. And then you have to sort of work through the ERISA and the regulatory issues. But if you know what you need and, and payers need good providers and payers certainly are willing to pay care management fees because the work you do in risk is very different than the work you do just in well, when, when all your patients are free agents and you don't know their names and you don't know their gaps in care and you don't know what care they need, that is very different than when you understand your population and the needs. And so it really starts with kind of the trust and the data integrity and the commitment to actually lower the cost. So providers got to lower the cost. They've got to they've got to close those gaps in care. They have to create the engagement because the payer wants to grow that product, right? And we want the data to deliver on our care model. And we always thought that population health, that value-based care was our operating model. And that is the way we looked at it. 
It's how I talk to the leaders about why we do what we do. This is our operating model. This is the way we deliver care. And the more we delivered care that gave us access to information to understand gaps in care and the needs of a population and who needed us the most, the more that is the only way we wanted to do business. So we had our must-haves from the payer, and it was working through their ability to actually deliver on some of the must-haves. And if they couldn't deliver on it, but they were going to work with third parties to figure out how to get this or send it to somebody else, if the commitment was there to get us the information, we knew we needed certain things to perform the way we had been performing and delivering on the results that we um, had delivered on. So we got pretty good at knowing what we needed. And then we also knew what they wanted. They wanted affordability. They wanted to grow the product. They wanted satisfaction rates. And we had discussions around who was going to do the surveys. So I think you can put those partnerships together. And perhaps then the most important thing is, and I just was talking to a group of people a couple hours ago who asked, well, what if your benchmark numbers are not right? What if the, the PMPM numbers are not right? Well, you have to bring your expertise to the table. You, it's hard work. This is boots on the ground. It's blocking and tackling. It's probably the hardest work I've ever done, um, but it may not be perfect. And if there is a problem in the data, if something was missing that changes uh, performance, you have to have the ability, both parties need to problem solve. They have to be willing to problem solve because problems are inevitable. Data is not perfect. Our Distributed leadership doesn't always work exactly the way we want to. We create mishaps, but what do we do around service recovery and what do we do when we problem solve with our partner? To me, that's the real test of a true partnership is to problem solve and continue to improve on what we're trying to do, which is really about delivering affordable, better care for our communities. And so on the, what are they doing around the population health strategies? They're giving us data. They might have contracts in place with online vendors. We're sharing our data. They're looking at their data around disparities. They are maybe funding our PMPMs for care management to include a piece for health equity or disparities. So we're doing new work, outreach work. That's one way in which they can partner because they can see it in their data and they can also then report on it. So um, it becomes a, again, a partnership with goals on what the initiatives are, you know, in the upcoming year and who's going to do what. So who's the best practice in claims? They are, because I don't want to be a claim shop. I once was a claim shop. To me, there's no value in processing claims, but I know some of my colleagues feel differently. They like to process claims. I just want the data files and I want them accurate. And I'll work really hard to make sure that we get the data but I want them for other things and they want certain things from us. So I think that's how you get to a continuation of a renewal. Um, and then maybe you look at longer term agreements, but leadership changes. So it's staying on top of it and it's, you know, having a governance structure, problem solving work groups from finance to membership, to growth, to care programs, to uh, you know, whatever it might be. It's a fluid relationship that both parties need each other to do better than what they have been doing. But once you do that work, it's the only way you want to work. Debbie, I couldn't agree more. That's the right way to work in my mind. And, you know, you speak about the strategy refresh and about impacting outcomes for populations. And 
you know, the opportunity and value-based care to improve health and not just health, but health for all, you know, thinking about health equity in our society is definitely the challenge of our lifetime. And health equity and social determinants have such a direct impact on outcomes. We know that the social determinants of health play an important role on people's health and well-being. Most of us have heard that one zip code is more impactful on health than one's genetic code, and that's never been more clear than it is now. We see vulnerable and underserved populations are facing immense disadvantages, and, and you've got a lot of experience in helping patient communities overcome those. At Essential Health, you built an ACL that innovated clinical care beyond the provider's walls and also embedded itself and invested in those communities. You aligned prospective payment with community-based investments that made the greatest impact. And your population health team collaborated with the communities to reach the entire population so that health risks could be assessed, so that personalized care interventions could be deployed. Your ACO really knew its population well. For example, in Minnesota, you realize there's a health divide between the North and the South, with the North being primarily rural and having higher rates of obesity, opioid addiction, tobacco use, and lower graduation rates. So this required you to implement a vastly different strategy than you would have implemented in the South. Can you elaborate on your success in planning targeted SDOH patient interventions based on outcomes-based measures and results-based accountability? And for our listeners out there, how would you guide them in how they should best assess the needs in their patient communities so that they can effectively deploy interventions to eliminate health disparities? Well, that's another great question. You know, this was new work for us, just like health equities. And maybe it's wrong to say it's new work, but it's, you know, you think about change management and it's the ADCAR. I think ADCAR is awareness, knowledge, desire and kind of the ability to actually do the work reliably. And I think it was awareness for us that really began our journey around the disparities. And this is awful. This is like, you know, we would have a, we'd have conversations at the leadership level and we said, we have a moral obligation to be here in the North with all these health outcomes, health status. We were looking at county level data. We could see zip codes, like where our corporate office was one block away, people's life expectancy was 10 years younger. And you just go, how can this be? And are we okay with this? And I think that we went to this place of we're not okay with this. We can do better. Much like I thought about the Don Berwick article when I read that, I was like, we can do better. We really can do better. Um, and so we looked at a lot of community data. And because I was over community health and community benefit, um, the community benefit dollars that we give back to our community, and I could see the dollars that we were spending. And I was over pop health, and I could see from the population where there were gaps in care. And because we started screening for social needs, I could see where people didn't have access to food. And that made a difference in their lives and they didn't have access to transportation or they missed the bus and they couldn't see the, you know, allergists or they couldn't see their doctor to have their A1C managed, that those failures, those gaps in care were affecting their overall ability to be healthy. During the time of COVID, we did launch uh, a pilot in three of our primary care clinics that we then extended to all of our clinics, all 75 of our clinics, where we were screening all of our patients regardless of payer type. I mean, we were screening everyone. And we had so many interesting learnings around 
how you ask the question, when in the rooming process do you ask the question, and how do you get the information to the, the clinician? Does the clinician want to know that Debbie is hungry, that Debbie has CHF, and she should be on a low-sodium diet, and so we should work with moms in Minnesota uh, to provide those dietary uh, meals to help her with you know, her CHF? So we ended up screening, I don't know, no, I could be wrong on the numbers here, um, a million patients, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong on the number, but all of our patients. And so we, we got a lot of great feedback and we saw people that said, yes, I'm, I am hungry and I'd like a follow-up appointment. And so we had community, we have community health workers in pop health. They would do the follow-up of those patients. And then the patient would say, Debbie would say, no, I'm not hungry. And so there was this asking the question and then getting better at the questions that we asked. So then we incorporated, do you want to follow up? I'm hungry, but I want no follow-up. So we were getting better at then addressing those that actually needed us and needed our help. And then we used our community benefit dollars to fund those nonprofits, hunger solutions, um, some transportation, uh, to help them receive our referrals and close those loops. So we could look at the referral, we could look at the referral to the partner, we would help them with funding for their resources, so they could actually do the work that we needed them to do, that they were better equipped to do that work. Um, so that, and then incorporating that information into the care plan became important for clinicians. They wanted to know these things about patients and we said, okay, so you have 15, 20 minutes. Do you want this information? Yes, I want this information because it won't take me long to just have a conversation with her around the importance of X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, screening for the social needs, and that's what we think about when we think about food and transportation and financial distress, our social needs. We started thinking longer term longitudinally around social determinants of health. And funding not just one year, one and done for this year's 990 or this year's you know, community benefit, we started thinking bigger around a three-year project around maybe affordable housing, maybe around respite care, really looking at what our community needed that didn't have that would be a benefit. And so we quickly moved into thinking longer term, which is sort of the right path. So we're nonprofit. We need sustainable plans, sustainable funding plans for these bigger projects that can really make a difference. Well, Debbie, you know, let's touch on payment models for a bit. When we started our conversation today, I could sense uh, some optimism from you, even though there's these immense challenges and trying to make this seismic shift towards value transformation in our country. But there is hope that, you know, CMS is is really leading the way. And, you know, they've really thrown down the gauntlet, if you will, and they've stated this goal by 2030 to have all traditional Medicare beneficiaries and accountable care relationships. And right now, accountable care programs offered through CMS now cover 13.2 million people enrolled in Medicare. And the agency is diligently working to expand the number of beneficiaries in these value-based arrangements. This year in 2023, 10.9 million beneficiaries are being cared for in MSSP ACOs, while 2.1 million are being cared for by REACH ACOs. And in the new ACO REACH models, providers can accept either full or partial cap as payment with the goal of coordinating primary and specialty care for patients while giving access to additional benefits like telehealth visits. 
and this new model also has uh, a requirement to implement a health equity action plan and extend access in underserved communities, along with guardrails to increase provider governance. And with ACO Reach, there's a, a newfound intentionality by CMMI to develop a health system that advances equity. I mean, they're now considering equity in all stages of model development, including ideation, model design, recruitment, implementation, and evaluation. So Debbie, I wanted to pose to you like three rapid fire payment model questions. So first, you know, will 2023 be a turning point for ACO growth and participation that will accelerate in 2024? Second, are you optimistic that the REACH model will make healthcare and access more equitable? And then lastly, with this imminent 2030 goal by CMS, do you think that we'll eventually be seeing mandated participation and risk-based payment in the years to come? Yes. <laughs> I, I do think we'll, you know, because they just sort of launched their strategies and their pillars and their stake in the ground. I asked Lee Fleshman uh, when I was at um, the Inc. 365 conference a couple of weeks ago in Boston, he was presenting and I got to know him when we applied for our hospital at home program. I go, are you going to make it? Are you going to get to 2030 and have those beneficiaries in an accountable care arrangement? And he said, well, it's going to, it's going to be hard work. So I think it's going to be hard work, but I think that um, there's a good chance that they might make it. I think they're going to work hard and we'll have to kind of measure. I mean, it's only seven years away, right? But the REACH model has so many elements to it that we like. So I'm in MSSP or I was in MSSP. They're still in MSSP. I wanted some of the things that are in the REACH model and some of the conversations we've had at the NACOS level with leadership is that how can we take the best of these models and integrate it in, I asked this of Liz, can't we just integrate them all into one? I want some of the waivers. I'd like the waivers that the MA plans have. I'd like to be able to do things that the MA plans do that I can't do in traditional Medicare. And I think they are trying to figure out better alignment. And when they get better alignment, these models will continue to improve. I think they have plans to launch more models. Uh, so more models is not necessarily better, but the integration of the key learnings and key opportunities is important. So, I mean, we're talking about 17 million, right? So we're talking about that's the, the unmanaged piece of that 58.6 million, about 17 million by the time you look at MSSP and uh, REACH. If you don't put a stake in the ground, you don't know where you're going, you're not going to get there. So at least the stakes in the ground, they're uh, socializing this across, you know, all industries and working with even state kind of Medicaid and what kinds of things that they can do around alignment of quality measures. So I think we're just going to see a lot of activity. So again, I will be cautiously optimistic that they'll achieve their target and I will be rooting on the sidelines and talking to organizations about the importance of if you're not in risk, just take the first step and sign an upside contract with CMS to or join an existing ACO to get the experience because the benefit is knowing your performance against your peer groups. Who doesn't want to know that? So I for sure I think the mandated payment models on the um, will happen with um, the the bundles. 
Um, and they've even talked about there being mandatory uh, joint replacement programs they had where some were mandatory, most were voluntary. They're going to extend BPCI advanced now by a couple of years, and they're going to be looking at mandatory models. So I, I think that definitely is on the horizon. So I think they'll continue to push, um, and they would like to have people sign up. But I think when, when they certainly know things and needing more transparency and even giving information to ACOs on the bundles and specialty care, I think they'll continue to give information, which helps create the awareness and the knowledge for clinicians and health systems and ACOs to say, can we do this better? And if we do this better, there is an alignment for a return that we can use for reinvestment. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit optimistic about the government. And, and I say that because I am more optimistic about them than I don't think the commercial market's going to come together and consolidate and have standardization and alignment. You're going to have you're going to have the Blues program. You're going to have Anthem's program. You're going to have United's program. And that actually at the clinical level, at the health system level, is administrative cumbersome to manage the different contracts and expectations. And if we can create some consolidation and rationalism, just like equity is going to be a part of all their models, if we can align these models in ways that make it easier for providers to do the right thing, I think we'll have a greater uptake. So I think we're in a critical year with 2023. There's a lot going on. I think we'll see you know, by 2025, maybe it's not 2024, but I think by 2025, we're going to begin to see some growth. We'll be asking CMS, okay, it's 2024. Uh, how many of those um, unmanaged lives did you pick up? Well, Debbie, uh, you know, I appreciate that vision of the future that you're painting. And and I too am optimistic that uh, we've got a lot of forces sending us in the right direction. And as we're thinking about this future, there's a critical piece of it that's the new generation of leaders that will take us into an era in 2023 and beyond. And as a leader, your influence doesn't end within the walls of your organization. It, we, we've talked today about how it branches out into the communities that you serve, but also you're committed to educating others, to groom them into emerging leaders in healthcare. And you've taught health policy and macro healthcare models for Denver University and Regis. And, and now you're serving as an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. I'd really like to get your insights on emerging health leaders in value-based care and in population health. Do we need a new kind of leader to disrupt the legacy thinking in healthcare that often holds us back from reaching our full potential in population health equity? Yes, we do. And I think they are emerging because I think this generation has more commitment around reducing disparities, that it doesn't sort of feel right for them. This, this generation, they're curious, they are engaged. I think we've got emergence of leaders that have been doing this work for a while and might maybe they carry the knowledge of the past and some of that knowledge is important to to uh, understand what worked and what didn't work i think when you start thinking about you know having the ability to um have care that is of the highest value for all i think that that generates an interest in our young leaders 
that why not have the attainment of the highest level of health for all people? I think that resonates with them. So I do teach and I really do love to teach. And I spend time talking about these models and what we're trying to do around value. And maybe some of the payment models of the past weren't quite right. We're not aligned. We're not supported by the data to innovate and make the change necessary to kind of deliver on these benchmarks. This group seems to be curious. This group seems to be called. This group, you know, wants to be engaged and I believe make a difference for the masses. And so I'm encouraged by that. And I say to them, get involved. You don't have to have all the information. Find a place at the table. Whatever your role is, you have the ability to influence the stakeholders at that table. Be curious about why what your organization is doing and why they're doing it. Um, and how can you do better? Because this is all about improvement. This is we're not writing our memoirs. We're still sort of bushwhacking through value and trying to figure out sort of this, you know, not so much the secret sauce anymore. It's the transparency of what works and doesn't work. Um, but be involved and be willing to take risks because that's what it's going to take to challenge the status quo and to push our stakeholders uh, to be better. Because ultimately, you know, this is about 330 million Americans um, and it's our healthcare system. And as you started this conversation, it's almost twice the amount, 17% of GDP now, and our results are still quite poor. So if not now, when, if not them, then whom? Well, Debbie, you're just such an inspiration to me. And it means so much that you're spending time with us right now on the Race to Value podcast. Um, you know, as I look at your career, I mean, you've climbed so many mountains and but you've also done that in in the literal sense i mean in your personal life you've been a mountain climber that you know takes these amazing risks so as an avid mountain climber you've attempted three of the seven summits you've climbed all of 58 of colorado's 14,000 foot peaks as well as mount rainier and washington and grand teton and wyoming Additionally, you've climbed peaks in Bolivia, Mexico, France, Argentina, Mount McKinley in Alaska. So, you know, I was just thinking, Debbie, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, can you provide us with your parting thoughts of inspiration of what it means to reach the summit? And what have you learned in mountain climbing that's similar to the adversity we face in value transformation? Ultimately, can we climb the mountain and win this race to value? I absolutely think that is possible. Um, I mean, I climb mountains for fun. I love the view from the top, but it's not, uh, the view from the top really allows you to look at how far you co you've come and it's the journey. So I think about the value-based care is the journey. I think about the 2030 goals is one summit. And when we achieve that, that becomes the base camp for the next summit. But all the learnings happen along the way. That's where you learn the most about yourself. You have to first take that risk, though. You've got to leave your base camp, right? You've got to leave your office. You've got to leave your kitchen. You've got to, you've got to leave everything you know to be true and take the risks and get on the trail. And that's what I love about climbing. And you don't always know sometimes. 
when you take the, the, the path least traveled, that's where you learn the most about yourself. And that's why I tell the students to take risks, get a seat at the table. You will learn more about yourself by taking those risks than being in the comfort of your home, you know, doing whatever. So yeah, I think there's a lot of analogies in mountain climbing to challenges uh, in life. But I know this, that if you don't, you know, take those challenges that you can get stuck. And sometimes even on a mountain, you might only see the next move and the next move might only be 15 feet or 15 inches. And it might be the crux of the entire mountain. But when you, when you push through that and you get on the other side of it, when you pass through those 15 inches or, or those 15 feet, all of a sudden you can see five more moves. And that's how you get to the summit. So this is hard work and we need to keep forging ahead and we need to keep problem solving, you know, on this journey and race to value because we deserve it. Our families deserve it. Our neighbors deserve it. Our communities deserve it. And what we're talking about is better care at a more affordable level where patients can feel good or consumers can feel good about their life and their their wellness. Well, Debbie, uh, we here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value and the Race to Value podcast, uh, we, you know, we're just, again, so grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to, you know, have this amazing discussion with you today. And um, we're really excited about what you continue to do in, in, in your uh, career and your semi-retirement. I mean, you're such an inspiration, and, and I really think our listeners are going to benefit greatly from your insights and wisdom. So again, just thank you so much for, uh, for being a part of the, the podcast this week. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for your questions and for letting me tell the story and share a bit about my passion. I've been trying to do this work in different shapes and partners and organizations my entire career, because again, it's dynamic, it's forever changing, but at the end of the day, it's about helping people. Debbie, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. It's been a great conversation.